In this episode, Margot Gregoire, VP of Finance at Luco, talks about building finance from the ground up, partnering effectively with pioneering founders and successfully fundraising through the pandemic. Hi, I'm Ross and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Margot, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, actually, I'm super happy to be here with you. So Margot, I'd love to start with, and it's always interesting to understand what the a finance leader's first role is like when they've moved from other industries or other positions. And in your case, you were in an advisory type role and then you worked in banking before becoming you know, a finance leader at Luco. So can you speak about that transition and why you made that transition and, and what that experience has been like? Yes, for sure. So indeed, I actually started my career in the banking industry in a role that was a mix of consulting and audit. And it was amazing because I got the chance to work for Universal Bank. So basically, I mean, corporate investment bank, capital markets, but also retail. So you get to see such a large let's say, a wide range of business lines and activities and products. You're learning so much about it, but you feel like it's it's a bit encyclopedic. Like you're learning, 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 but your skin is not really in the game. You observe other people. You want to try to discuss the strategy, the moves, how you can improve, how you can change things, but you are not executing it yourself. And at some point, I really felt that I wanted to switch to such a role and have my skin in the game. and and especially. First, remain in the finance industry because actually I love it. So it was either banking or asset management or insurance. And second, I wanted to be in a finance position. And actually, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about myself because it's super different to observe over people execution and performance and to be the sole people are responsible and owner of the results of your team and of what you are building. So so actually it, it was a massive shift. I needed it. I needed it because I think I was losing intensity and uh, it came back. <laughs> it definitely came back. And actually it's a super self-fulfilling experience that I can take my own risk and, and be responsible for it. I really like it. I empathize with that. I like to describe sometimes myself as a recovering consultant because <laughs> similar to you, I'd like for a part of my career was in an advisory role and it's very hardworking, intense, really interesting, as you said, but and, and intellectually satisfying. But after a while, I felt, using a sporting analogy, like a commentator rather than a player. And so you're just observing. And so I was wondering for you as well, when you look back on that transition, do you think that you moved at the right time or should you have gone earlier or could you have gone even later, like regardless of the opportunity you're in now? Because I think that question of timing is always always an interesting one. I think it totally depends on your own energy and curve. And I perfectly know myself and my learning curve is totally correlated to the my intensity and how endangered I am. And, you know, after five years advisory, you, well, you can be endangered for sure. Like, you know, you put yourself in uncomfortable situation willingly to learn more, but it starts being 
I don't know. It, it was not natural anymore. I was like, oh, I'm bored. I know how it will be. I know how the two coming weeks will be. I know how the first interviews with the guys will be. And at the end of the day, I was like, okay, I will come. But it was not so exciting. I mean, it, it has been exciting for more than four years. So, And then I, I felt that my learning curve was just not as steep as I wanted it to be. So um, I needed that change. I needed uh, yeah, some kind of a, a boom in my career. And so then you, you arrived at Luco leading finance there. And so did you, I presume that you got that type of steep learning curve over the past 18 months? Yes, yes. And, and actually, when you say leading finance, it's, uh, it's super beautiful and positive, but it was building finance. <laughs> because actually, when I joined, you know, like, actually, my, my, my hiring process was super cool. I was very lucky because I was, so I was in that advisory role and I was like, okay, I think I'm bored. I need to change. Where shall I go? My God, my God. And then some night I received a text message. Uh, oh, I just wanted to tell you, I shared your name with someone who's looking for VP finance. I was like, okay, okay. And the day after I entered that pipe, that hiring pipeline, and I start the process with the guys, with all the Luco teams, with the investors, stuff like that. And I think after the first meeting we have with my CEO, so Rafael, He's telling me, okay, you know what? I need an I need an adult. Like, I need the adult in the room. Can you be that adult? I was like, yes, I think I can, but that I'm, you know, you do not realize what it means. And then it was just jumping into in that company where finance was basically led by the CEO because it's essentially fundraise and survival at this stage. And it was the first time they had a, a serious fundraise. It was just after Series A, so 20 million euro. And we needed to start organizing things. So the day, and, and I arrived actually two days before the first lockdown of COVID. So I have to say, I think it could not be steeper as a curve to go back to learning, yes. You start as in that position three days before lockdown, the height of a really challenging environment for everyone in the world and every business. You're building finance from scratch where previously the founder had essentially done it. Where do you start? This is maybe the only chance I had with COVID is that I actually I, I knew where I had to start. It was like, okay, was the runway? How do we handle it? What can I manage? What can I just, what do I have to suffer? <laughs> and where is my, my margin? Like, where is my margin of maneuver at my, in my hands? So actually, yeah, I jumped into, into cash management. It was the first thing I had to do. It was the most important, most serious stuff. It was also, I think, maybe a nervous point for our investors. Like, uh, you know, I'm here. It's three days I'm here. We are in the lockdown and uh, I had to approximately meet a couple of people, my CEO, my CTO, the intern that will help me in the, in the coming months. And then I just talked to my investors and then I, I talked to them every other day because I ha I, I'm basically building the cash management plan from scratch in two weeks and telling them, okay, we can go until then and we will manage it this way. And I suggest we try that, 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 that. And it was the entry point. And actually it was super cool because it was also the opportunity to screen the company. Like when you want to understand cash management in depth, you just have to jump into N, like each and every team and ask them, how do you work? What do you do? What are providers, contractors, SaaS, and ba 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 ba. You go line by line. Then of course you tackle uh, 
and as smartly as you can the growth issue because you're in a situation where you don't know really what you're acquiring. You're in the middle of a worldwide crisis. There is no much leads. You don't know if it's normal or not. You don't know if there's an opportunity or not in your industry. You're trying to figure it out. Do I need to invest? Do I need to freeze the budget? You know, it's really all those conversations that actually it was an enabler for me. It was an enabler to just screen the full company and second, get super good, let's say, working relationships with important people, people that will matter with me in the future. And for instance, marketing team, I get to work with them super closely, thanks of that. And I think it was to the benefit of the, the future relationship too. To do that in two weeks is, is quite the feat to begin with. Obviously, you're trying to look at the overall runway, but was your more of your focus on like trying to control costs or understand investments, or was it about how to unlock and forecast growth and, and the top line revenue during a period which was extremely difficult, if not impossible, to forecast? Actually, we were a bit scared and we understood quite fast that in our industry, so home insurance, there won't be much moves on the market. And it will only be opportunistic moves of people trying to, you know, just uh, narrow down uh, the basket. So we were like, okay, we will focus on what we can handle on the cost side. And then you start, you know, you, you have many different levers. What is essential? What is nice to have? Then there is also all the different, let's say, payment facilities you can get with your local government. Of course, in France, we were super lucky with that because we had a lot of flexibility with different type of taxes or charges. So this is how you can optimize that. And you try to model, okay, what are the different options I have? And actually, one thing that was a bit difficult is that, you know, but everybody was exactly in the same situation is, okay, how long would it be? How long would it be? Because... We are in that VC-backed way of growing companies where you have to invest super fast. You raise funds to spend because you hire a lot of people, because you launch a lot of products and services, because you want to expand super fast. So this was also mostly the question. Do we keep hiring? Do we freeze everything? What do we focus on? So it was essentially that. How did you make those trade-offs then? Well, like what, what did you choose to do? We decided to cut everything that was nice to have. After a fundraise, you know, you had that some kind of uh, euphoria, like everybody's taking new tools, new stuff. We're trying that and this and, and you have double accounts for everything. So it was just like super rationalizing everything, asking everybody to, you know, to manage this as if it was your own crisis. And, and once you've been cutting all the nice to have and asking everybody to be super lean, as lean as possible, we decided with the marketing team that uh, we, we put a, a maximum budget per month and we said, okay, we will spend up to that in the current situation. And then if we see that actually we have capacity to spend more because acquisition is good, the, the you know, cost of acquisition is, is, is reasonable. And we think that the quality of what we acquire is, uh, is healthy for the portfolio, then we will go higher. But we put a cap because we know with this cap, we can survive up to 28, 30, 34 more months. And this is, let's say, a reasonable horizon for next fundraise because in the environment, you, you're like, okay, you know what? I don't know when I will be able to go out for a new fundraise. So let's say minimum two years. And then you manage and you do anything you can so that you can ensure everybody that in two years you will still be here. And presumably, I think this was doing the rounds across all venture-backed companies last year, 
uh, especially in the in the second quarter round about Easter, was like to maximise your runway, like maximise your cash because nobody knew how long the crisis was going to last for and so forth. In your case, you had this incredible summer, as you said, your home buy, like your product is so innately tied to the movement of people uh, and buying new houses and so forth. And then that, that unlocked in an incredible way. And then rather than you have to wait 36 months, say, you ended up actually closing another round towards the end of that year, which is incredible. Exactly, exactly. And actually, this was super interesting because we had that period between March and May and we were like, okay, we, so as I said, we cap marketing spend we we lock everything and then we saw okay they will unlock us they will unlock us people have they have postponed their moves so you know why we have an opportunity and then we had that meeting in june we were like okay so we were investors we will go out on tv we will do our first tv campaign and i remember that day we've been preparing that deck and we were like we need to be bold because we we, we you know what we need to try, we need to try it super hard and this is the biggest opportunity we have if we go a good summer if we do a good summer then we will be able to raise that next round and that will be good so in june we we validate that with our investors okay we go out it's our first tv campaign we we invested more than 2 millions overall over the summer in brand it was a lot at the time and actually it turned out incredibly well it was an amazing season for us we indeed took advantage of that people who had postponed their moves and so we had an amazing summer a super beautiful curve very good acquisition. So in September, we were totally ready to go out. And I mean, and then it's, um, I have to say, that's the magic of my CEO who has a, an amazing uh, flair, as we say in French. He feels when he needs to get out. And in, in, in a couple of weeks, we were ready and, um, and we were starting to, to do the road show. So then you being hired as the adult in the room and asked if you could be the adult in the room, Surely, like, did that not make you feel nervous that you were going out to do you know, a really sizable investment at a time when it wasn't certain whether the market and your particular market was coming back? So how did you balance up the, the need to be an adult with the need to be bold? I totally. I think it was the first very big decision where I was like, okay, Margot, you need to accept that if we want to survive in this industry and in this way of growing and developing, the only thing you can do is accept the risk here. And so we said, okay, you know what? We will invest a lot there, but we were super reasonable on other parts of the investment. For recruitment, we really tried to be smart and to focus on revenue generating roles and ops roles that were essential for the quality of service of the portfolio. And for the rest, we managed as we could. And, and we worked like that. And we asked people for a while to, to really stick to the must-haves and, and not the nice-to-have. And it turned out super well. And I think it was also a good learning for everybody because, you know, we talk a lot about frugality. You want people to develop and to think of frugality. I think it's a super cool mindset if you were capable of creating that in a VC-backed startup. <laughs> Honestly, it's a challenge. But it gave that sense of, okay, we can do it. It can be super positive And you know what? We can enjoy it. It was not super cool. I mean, when you join the first month and it's locked down and you tell everybody, okay, you know what? I think we will cut that because I am not sure it's so useful. Can you think it twice? You know, people are not that comfortable, but they understand because of the, um, the economic situation. And, you know, six months afterwards, like you look back and you say, okay, you know what? It went well. And so then 
presumably the, the summer went well, that you actually had incredible results. You went on roadshow, closed another round. You, you mentioned that after Series A, there was the euphoria of, you know, overspend and trying new, new things. So then following your recent round, was there a similar euphoria or actually did you try to be more frugal given your experiences? It was a balanced euphoria. Like I tried to, let's say, control the hysteria of the post-Series B. We invested massively on hiring. And on that, we were super bold. Uh, we said, okay, you know what? We stick to the principles we defined last year, which is if you do not need a tool, just do not pick it. Think twice, think company-wide, try to talk to other teams that could leverage also what you're using. So it's also, you know, so that you make sure you do not develop silos where people are using two tools that are approximately doing the same thing for two teams, which is stupid. And this is a routine. This is principles you force people to adopt and you're asking them to, okay, you're looking at that. Have you talked to this and this and this person? Okay, what do they think? It's the same I apply to me. For instance, I was looking for an FPN tool. Then I put my marketing team in the loop because I know they forecast a lot of different stuff for acquisition. And I want them to use the same tool as I do because I think the capabilities of the tools can enable that. So we try to maintain those principles. And on the hiring plan, we were super bold. So then thinking specifically about what you're doing around finance, going back to that point you made, which is you weren't leading finance, you were building finance. So how, how have you now approached that part of the, of the building, the building of your team and finance as a function within Luco? You know, after working in a global bank, a global French bank, I was super scared of a couple of stuff. First, being alone in my tower and giving orders to people, not really understanding their daily life and daily constraint. Second, saying no all the time before asking why, <laughs> because I saw that a lot. And third, having the feeling that we are not in the business. You know, and, and actually, I don't want to say it's pessimistic or it's negative, or, but calling those teams support team. Okay, yes, it's support team, but it's supporting business. And you have to think that first. What is the, I mean, what is the first thing you need to think of? Your client, always. And second, how do the teams best serve the client? And actually recruiting the team, that was the mindset I was looking for. And when I look back and the people that I'm working with today, this is exactly who they are. It's people that do not say no, they ask why. It's people that are willing to understand the constraint on the other side. And they want to feel they take part and they contribute to it. And they are facilitator of daily lives of other teams because they are not in direct contact with the client. But at the end of the day, the way we perform our own role is super important. It matters totally in the final delivery to the client. So this was the most, it, it's, it's a lot about mindset and not really hard skills. I mean, hard skills, yes, I need an accountant. Yes, I need an FPNA. yes. But you know, all those things you can feel when you do basic you know, business case. Like you see people that are comfortable with figures, people are comfortable thinking like, um, we have a financial mindset. But the most important is that, is the attitude, how you position yourself with others, how you understand and you make other constraints work together. This is the most important for me and the team. You mentioned something that I think can often be difficult when you're in some type of operational team, which is about thinking of the customer, putting the customer first or being customer centric. How do you practically in finance and with your team try and encourage that type of mindset? 
it's a lot about what are the questions you ask to other teams when they come to you with a new request. It's a lot about, okay, what's the process impact, operational impact? What are the banks you want to work with? What are the payment facilitation they offer you? How do you manage the cash? And for us, it's super practical. Is okay, how do people pay their insurance premiums? How do we pay back if there's any problem? How do we pay for the claims? All those things. How do we make it simple for employees, like claim managers, so that it's not super cumbersome to do a payment? How do we make it yeah, safe and simple and lean for the client so that it does not have to wait the three, four, five business days for a simple wire when it can be instant, stuff like that. So it's a lot about what do you, what are the questions you ask yourself when you ask the other teams within the company and you always have to think at, okay, what's the global impact company-wide and for your clients? You're trying to create that culture where your team are always thinking of the customer, always partnering with the various parts of the business that they're supporting. What do you do actually to, within the team to embed that culture and encourage that type of thinking? I would say it's not so easy because we are not client-facing teams, but it's a lot about the reflex you want people to have, the questions you ask them in terms of operations. As I said, a lot about the processes, about the final impact. Okay, who will use that? Okay, what would be, is there any client processes involved? What's the impact on that process? Okay, what's the role of, what's the precise role of this person coming to you with a new request? What does he want to change? What is the impact, the impact in his daily life and in the way he's serving client in his role? So it's a lot about that. It's also a lot about how you build the roadmaps because, you know, so we are paced on a quarterly basis. We define our roadmap. Of course, we have yearly goals and long-term vision of what we want to build, but we are pacing it at the quarterly level. And it's quite important when you do that, that yes, you know, you have the tendency to jump into the details. Okay, I'm into then, I need to develop, deploy that tool, I need to implement that, I need to switch that process, blah, blah, blah. And we try to give high-level guidelines. What's the impact? Are you impacting internally the teams? Okay, are you impacting beyond that? What are you trying to do during this quarter? What's the purpose of what you're doing? And whose life will be improved thanks to your roadmap, actually? Then thinking about that compared to what you shared at the beginning, you know, the two weeks to develop like a cash management plan, a crisis plan with the investors and the rest of the business. How is your role evolving as the business grows and develops? And of course, as your team grows and develops? Actually, this is something I loved in the trajectory, I would say, is that I started super operational because I was alone with an intern who was actually an incredible person that helped me a lot. And it was definitely an amazing support. And I'm trying more and more to structure, give direction, anticipate a lot. When you're alone, it's very difficult to pr be proactive and anticipate in such an environment. Everything is going so fast. Like, you know, in the morning, you try to be super early because you know you have that peaceful hour where you can just prepare for war <laughs> and then the war begins <laughs> and, and I mean every day is like that and the more you grow the more you structure your team the more you hire people it's brain power so it's good internal challenge and I think I, I am recruiting people that are better than I am in their own discipline so it's super cool I feel pushed forward for everything they do and everything we're working on together 
And for me, my role is more and more to anticipate because, you know, we are accelerating. After Series A, you scale in your domestic market. After Series B, you expand internationally. And actually, I took the ownership of international expansion for Luco. So I really start, I hire someone who is doing the PMO for that. And I'm really pacing the roadmap for a country's launch. So it's really about anticipation. The more and more you got that high level view of what you want to do, you learn also. I mean, uh, you know, Series B, it was my first fundraise. So, and honestly, lawyers manage to do things quite complex. So if you've never done, done that before, you cannot guess what's coming next, what the documentation will look like. Now I know. Now I know what I, the precise points I will be willing to negotiate. So all this stuff, you feel that you're, you're getting more mature, you'll be a, more proactive and you anticipate better what you need. So it's a lot about that, trying to anticipate. So also for my team to be more comfortable and not feel that battle way of <laughs> managing the daily life. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the ability to be proactive rather than reactive in battle. Exactly. Which is the tricky part. So you touch on international growth, which is, a, of course, a huge focus area for a scaling up companies like yours. How have you and, and Luco approached that that process of international growth, both the, the strategy of it, so where should we go and, and why? And then the, the really challenging part, of course, which you mentioned you've, you hired someone to take care of, which of course is the how and, the, and setting the operation up. How have you approached that? We were looking at the European market and we splitted the markets into two different categories. The one that were already super mature and highly competitive and the one that were let's say digitally mature, but not super competitive, where it was essentially incumbents. You do not have much startups in our industry operating there. And looking at those two, we said, okay, we will start with the low competition markets. We will learn there. And after you have a lot of over consideration, of course, what is the addressable market size? And what is the profile of the clients? What is the regulation in this country? Because actually we are in a highly regulated industry, so it matters a lot. And you cannot jump somewhere and discover that you cannot distribute here because you have too many hurdles. So it was, let's say, a multi axis analysis of all the different markets and we picked the ones that were low or average competition uh, from a regulation standpoint it was affordable and also we thought that it was let's say a good fit with our dna our positioning is to be home partner not insurer so we want people that care about their home that are comfortable using a digital player using an app that consider insurance as a service more than a financial product. So you know all those stuff and we define the market like that and then we tackle the first market based on those criteria. And then once you've selected that market, in some ways the most challenging part is how do you actually execute, build an operational plan to go and grow there? How have you approached that? In our industry, it's super important to understand that each piece matters. You need to have a good insurance product. You need to have the good tech product. You need to have the local quality of service you're promising to your customers. So it's not only you're building a platform when you will sell socks or you will deliver uh, burgers. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it's very different. It's like you need to have the local expertise, people that perfectly know local law, local regulation. It's super important. 
And you also need to better, let's say, anticipate on all the different aspects. So what we said is that in my team, I hire that PMO, like super PMO role, and she's coordinating all the different teams across the company. And actually we manage in, yeah, between, we started really working on it mid-February and we were live on the 15th of July. So it, it was insane. Actually, what we managed to do here, I think we, <laughs> at some point, I remember my CEO telling me, and, and you still believe it's going to be okay for July? And I was like, yes, it's going to be okay. Yes, it's going to be okay. And I was, I was thinking, my God, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Can we do that? And, and we did. So, but it was super tight coordination of all the streams because you have a lot of interdependencies in between the streams, if your insurance product is not ready, then your tech product cannot be ready, then the pricing is not ready, then the integration with the local distributors is not ready. All this is a cascade and you need to be super organized. And so we've been learning. I think we can be even more efficient, but we've been learning, but we've been super rigorous pacing each stream and making sure that if there was someone lagging somewhere, understanding, okay, what's the impact? What's the cascade? And, and we were managing all that all the time. From your perspective, so you're obviously overseeing that. That's a company-wide initiative. But of course, you're trying to balance that up with your other responsibilities, managing presumably new investors, the building of the finance function and the running of the business. How do you then balance up those responsibilities and, and manage your time effectively? I think I'm still learning here. <laughs> Actually, it's a lot about how you work with your team. And how you trust them. I'm not a micromanager at all. I need a couple months to trust the people I'm working with. And I want to have and develop that mutual trust where I feel they, they, I give them enough ownership and delegation that they can accelerate if they need. And they can call me anytime if they need to. And so what I try to do is that I know the hot moments for each team. And I try to make sure that it will not all come at the same time for everybody. And I allocate my time. It's a hot moment for accounting because that's quarterly closure. We need to focus. I need everybody to align and to respond. And in two weeks from now, we are live in Spain. Okay, I need two weeks of intense focus on that country opening. And I try to have that super large roadmap in my head all the time and saying, okay, this week I need to push here. This week I need to push here. And that's how I do things. And well, sometimes I have to push a couple of fires at the same time. But I would say often it's possible to manage that through a quarter and have a balanced timeline for everybody. And it's also good because it gives, you know, breathe in, breathe out for everybody. Okay, last week it was me. Next week it's going to be a bit cooler for me. <laughs> and you feel the team is breathing, you know. And, and, and it's good. It's good because it's balancing the energy among people also. What you're alluding to, and I'm sure you have to do a degree of this, but you're trying to minimize context shifting too much so that you've got one or two weeks extreme focus on particular topics and areas so that, again, you can be dedicated to that and presumably go deeper. Totally. And I think it's also self-discipline. Like, even if I need to take that high-level view I was mentioning before, trying to maybe be a bit less operational than I used to be, I still force myself to read everything, to go into details. If, there is, if I have a doubt about something, I just open the document myself, go through it myself, and go to the person I want to ask a question to. 
And I think it's because of that self-discipline that I'm quite well aware of everything and I'm capable of reacting because I know the context. I force myself to be super aware of the context at any point in time so that even if I'm not the owner and I'm not super operational, I can understand and help them make a decision. So it's a lot about that. It's, yeah, forcing yourself to make sure you understand everything and you understand uh, the impacts on other teams, other people, on the timeline for everybody. And, and then you are more comfortable to react super quickly and to help your own team. So this is a lot about that. So then, Margot, I would like to perhaps finish with a question thinking about others who are early in their career, maybe who, who aspire to being a, a finance leader or CFO. What advice would you have to those people about what they need to develop and how they can actually get themselves into a finance leadership position? I would say, first, I really think my self-discipline is helping me a lot, really. You need to be willing and to be interested into going through your documents, knowing your budget, asking the questions about each line in the hiring plan, understanding the role of people across the company so that you you know your major role at the end of the day, and particularly in my environment, is to help your CEO be smart in investment allocation and resource allocation. For that, you need to deeply understand what all the teams are doing and where you can accelerate or not. So this is important. Second, I would say maybe it's a humility lesson. You also need to understand that the finance role is not really under the spotlight. It's a lot about being the best partner of the leader of the company. And so it's not you speaking a lot. But it's you analyzing and pushing the ideas slowly a lot. And this I love. I mean, this is a position I, I'm comfortable with. And then you have to, yeah, you, you have to love looking at the, at the intestines of the company, like uh, understanding everything. You master the book, meaning you, are, you know everything that's happening. And it's cool. I mean, if you are super curious, it's super cool because you learn a lot about all the you're talking to all the teams, all the profiles. You discover new new jobs, new positions. You discover new tools. You discover missions. And I think this is, to me, the most interesting in the role. Is that, um, yes, you are not under the spotlight. You are not, you know, in, in for, for instance, in scale-up, it's, uh, it's marketing very often under the spotlights because they make the growth happen. And it's key. It's crucial. So if you love that, well finance role is maybe not for you, but if you love to observe everything and try to have a deep understanding so that you can help anticipate and be smart on the next move, then it's it's for you. And I guess actually returning to where we started, that that's perhaps where when you moved into finance and, and working in a scale-up environment, it satisfies that same curiosity that you always had earlier in your career but with the one difference of actually owning and building a single company. Yes, totally. That's exactly that. Margot, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you've had some amazing stories and wonderful insights. If our listeners wanted to connect with you online, um, where would the best place for them to do that? Actually on LinkedIn, I'm quite responsive. So just do not hesitate to reach out. Margot, thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure, Ross. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. 
This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com. 